We're very grateful to be here and we have loved the time with you so far. Um, we are Michael and Sue Cook from Lynchburg, Virginia, and this is not going. What do I do now? <laughs> no, that's not it. Okay, there we go. Thank you. Thank you. We are from Lynchburg, Virginia. We're the founders and directors of Allow the Children. Now, we spent many, many years sitting in pews um, in our home church, very active in our home church with no idea that we would ever be a part as we are of an international ministry. But God gave that one piece at a time, or I'm not sure that um, we wouldn't have been overwhelmed with what, what he would have done with it um, as it came to pass. Um, we are not looking for personal support. The Lord has meets our needs through our business investments, the businesses that we were actively pursuing before um, piece by piece um, this ministry um, came before us. Now we were sent to make disciples of all nations. So we are giving it a try. And these are some of the nations that the Lord has given us so far to work with. The first one and the one that we um, our mo the one where most of our work with is the country of Nepal, and that's the one I'm going to talk about most, about most of all today. Now, our most frequent question recently has been, when are you going to travel again? When is this going to happen again? These are the mountains of Nepal that were flying over there in that picture, and the answer is we don't know. Nepal opens, Nepal closes, the people still are not allowed to gather, although it's slowly getting better, so um, please pray about that, but we trust that God will make that possible again in his own time. And as we are working here in the U.S., we are very busy and the projects are going on. All of our ministry is still going on as it was before the pandemic ever came. This is the little country of Nepal, which is sandwiched between China and India, very mountainous country, a very needy country, a home of beautiful people that we love so very much and that's the most common destination that we have. At this point, and this surprises me, perhaps as much as it might you, we have about a thousand children. That number fluctuates up, it fluctuates down for all kinds of reasons, but we have about a thousand children in our sponsorship program. Sponsorship is $30 a month. If you give um, for child sponsorship or for a project, 100% of that money goes to the field, and we will continue doing that for as long as the Lord makes us able. Um, this is Prabhat. Prabhat is in one of our children's homes. He was about six years old when he first came. His mother had died some years before and his, his father suddenly died. He became an orphan with no relatives who could take care of him, no, no hope. What would, what would happen to this child who was way up in the mountains? His, uh, a relative of his who could not keep him or chose not to keep him brought him down and left him in one of the churches that we were working with that were, was down below the mountain. That pastor called us and asked us to take him, and we came and picked him up. I happened to be in Nepal at the time, took him to one of our children's homes. Um, little orphan Prabhat had never been to school that we know of, had never heard the name of Jesus that we know of. This is Prabhat. He finished school this year, and he wants to go to Bible college, and we will be um, delighted and grateful to be sending this boy on for whatever God has um, in his life. Now, um, you might not be surprised that we take care of orphans and abandoned children, but this little boy is Solomon. He doesn't look very happy in that picture, but that's the only picture I had when he was little. 
And that's his father who has, who has founded, who had, what is, what is the word? He has started three little village churches, again, way up in the mountains where he lives. And that man serves those churches on his two feet. Um, we had a bicycle donated for him one time, and, we, and the, the message came back from Paul and said, this guy can't use a bicycle. Everywhere he lives is vertical. Um, so we used the money for chickens. But he is a very faithful, well, we did. He is a very faithful pastor. There's no school up there. He had about five children. He asked us to take one of them so that he could get an education you know, and be better prepared to lead the people in that community. So that's Solomon with a very good, solid Christian family that we've taken into our children's home. He's under our sponsorship, but we are, are glad to help and raise him up so that we have an educated leader to send back to his village who already knows the language, who already has some immunity to malaria, um, many things that an American could never um, achieve. This is Solomon. He's not quite finished with school yet, but we're, we're proud of him, and he's in our children's son. This is Sharmilla. She's also from a big mountain, a big high mountain area. Sharmilla lives in the extended family that's so common in the Nepali area. And one of the men in that extended family was abusing her. And the pastor happened to find out about it, called us, and asked us to take her. So Sharmilla is still another child who has a family, um, but she's in our children's home. And we're raising her up in a safe place. This is Sharmilla. She's almost finished with school now. She'll be going back to her village. And who would be more prepared to help other children in her situation than Sharmilla will be um, now once that we have her educated? This slide is here because it's a picture of the children worshiping in that particular children's home. They worship with a passion that, that thrills me every time I go. Um, these, from, when one is saved out of the Hindu faith, it costs something, and even children understand that, and they return you know, quite a lot of gratitude to God for it. It's a, it um, thrills me each time I go. This is Pooja, another child who's in our sponsorship program. She was never in a children's home. Um, she was about eight, and her father had her alongside the road selling her. Why? We don't know. Maybe the family was in such poverty that he needed the money or needed somebody else to take her um, to be a house servant someplace. The partner that we now work with, this was back before we ever started working with him, happened upon this situation and literally bought the child, brought her home, and raised her as his own daughter. We sponsored her, sent her to school. And this is Pooja over to the side now. She's married to a boy who just finished Bible college. They're looking for a ministry of their own right now. He's doing labor work, um, especially with the pandemics. Um, if you remember her name, please pray for her. But she's another child that's come up through our sponsorship and um, going out to whatever God has for her. This is a faithful pastor and his family who work in the slums. Slums is hard work. You have to be, have some experience in the slums to want to go back there, which he does. He grew up in a lot of his time and as a child was spent in the slums. He had a heart to go back and help the people there and started a children's home that we call Action Love Home. These children, these are all boys. They're all from terrible circumstances. One of them was seven years old living under a bridge completely alone. Another was eight years old, was kicked out of his home because he um, was going to that Christian club, which was the church. Um, but the Christians needed to come about and, and help in that situation. Is that right or not? So we've come in and helped this pastor 
Um, each one of these kids is under sponsorship. He takes care of them, he raises them, we help. And each one of these kids is growing up and going out to whatever God will have for their lives. This is the same group of kids. This is the Action Love Boys. They're holding Christmas bags. One of the projects we do each year is the Christmas project where we fill those bags with things that the kids need. They're not toys, it's not candy. Might be a little bit of candy, but they're usually school supplies and clothing, and they're very delighted to get those each year. Um, this is Adam. He came out of that same children's home. Adam was begging on the streets and stealing um, from the markets to survive. That's Adam on the right. He's starting pharmacy school this year and, out, and believing that the Lord will use him through that. Very um, pleased with Adam and so glad that we could help him. This is a shot from Haiti that I put into the slides because this girl's 15 years old. She came up through one of our children's homes and she's teaching Sunday school. So, you know, we feed them, we take care of them, we want to give them an education, but this is the reason why we have the sponsorship program. We're training these kids so that they can use what is invested in them for others, and this is what this girl is doing here today. Um, in, in the country of Burundi in Africa, we have a school for the blind, and there are two schools for the deaf. Um, these kids mostly come from substance farmers that barely survive. If they do have any money, they're sure not going to spend it on their blind or deaf child. They're all supported and under sponsorship, but they come in here and they're hearing the gospel and they're learning a way that they can make a living for themselves. We've just started some vocational training for both the blind, but um, particularly for the deaf this past year, and this is part of what we've been doing in the pandemic. We've we have um, funded this, and they have built these buildings and supplied the, the buildings with the means to, to do this for them. This is a children's home in Bangladesh. This is a rented building that we have, and these kids are all from Muslim backgrounds. They're, they're in, safe, in a safe place in our children's home in the middle of a, of a Muslim area, and they have an Awana club there, an Awana club that is growing with the Muslim kids coming in that hear God's word every day through this children's home. This is also Bangladesh. Again, this is way up in the mountains in a, in a very restricted tribal area. Um, and these, we built the buildings that you see behind you there. These kids are coming from a tribal area where people are not allowed to go. When I go up there, we've got so many hoops to jump through to get me up there, and I have to be out within just a, a few hours are the rules. But these kids, as far as we know, did not ever hear the name of Jesus before they came to this children's home. But we have some godly Bangladesh believers who live with them and train them and teach them and feed them and clothe them and we send them to school. So that's what's happening in Bangladesh. This is a boy who came out of that program, T2. He was an orphan, grew up, and he, he, was, he had heard the name of Jesus before. He was a pastor's child, but he's one of the many that were in there. But his father died, his mother had to leave for India, that's the only relatives that she had, and T2 was left behind. And he came into our children's home, he grew up, and T2 is also starting Bible school this next coming year. I put this slide in, this is our partner that you see in the water there, who works with in Bangladesh, and you don't see a baptism in Bangladesh very often. These are the kids from our children's home, some of them, and some, some other believers from the nearby churches, 
And I wanted you to see this because just for the blessing that it is, it's very illegal. This man could be arrested or even separated from his head for doing what he's doing there, but they're um, doing a baptism with brand new believers in the country of Bangladesh. Um, pastor training. Pastor training is something that Michael and I were doing. We were, we were making trips into Nepal. I might be training women or doing a, what we might call a vocational Bible school for children. And Michael trained pastors in many, many countries before we ever started Allow the Children. Um, and I have a few slides here of different men that we have seen, Americans that we have sent, American men that have, come, that have, been, have gone through that program in the different countries. Um, here's Michael uh, once again in one of them. But Woodhaven is helping now to make this happen. And I want, to be, I want to express our gratitude to you. That is such a blessing for that. Even during this pandemic, we haven't been able to send American men, but there are some national men in each of these countries who are very able to do this, and it is still going on. And we could, we could do as many pastor trainings as we could fund, and you all are helping to make this happen. This is Burundi, Africa that we're seeing now. Such a blessing, so, so needed. These are people that are going out and teaching others, and the investment of this is just spread and multiplied over and over and over. Um, here's somebody that you know. Um, as, as Nathan mentioned, he's been on many a trip with us. They call him Pastor Natan there. And anytime I go back to Nepal, they ask, when is Pastor Natan coming again? Now, we've sent a lot of men, and most of them have done just an excellent job, but, but Nathan is the one that they keep asking for again. I want to give them the answer to that question. When will Pastor Natan come again? Um, this is a verse that's, that's special to Michael. He'll probably refer back to it as he's speaking. And thank you so much for your time. Can you back that slide up and put that verse up there again? Is that doable? I'm not, there you go. You, magically it happened. Well, uh, that was a great introduction that Sue did for me. Uh, I also appreciate the fact that you all uh, put a bulletin insert in today about uh, leadership training and all. So this just kind of greases the skids for me. Um, so uh, I, I want to talk about uh, pastor and leadership training uh, in the countries where we minister. Uh, and I, so I've sort of got some, um, you know, good news and bad news. Uh, the bad news is that uh, we're going to cover the entire book of Ezra today. The good news is it's going to take us about three minutes to cover that book, uh, and then we will invest a little bit more concentrated time on one verse, which is uh, what you're seeing on that um, slide there. So the book of Ezra is divided essentially into two sections. First section is chapters one through six. And in those chapters, we see King Cyrus, who is a Persian king, uh, has ordered that the temple be rebuilt in Jerusalem. And he sends uh, Zerubbabel, who is a governor, 
and Yeshua, who is a priest, uh, he sends them with a contingent of people to begin building the temple. So over a course of a number of years, the temple is started, and then it's stopped because of some political wrangling, and then more political wrangling, and it gets started again. Finally, the temple is completed. They dedicate the temple, and they begin to worship there. And they then decide that they are going to celebrate the Passover, um, and they hadn't celebrated the Passover in many, many, many years. And so they all have to purify themselves, be ceremonial clean, and they celebrate a Passover. This was a spiritual high point. It's the spiritual high point for the people. Um, to borrow a Motor City analogy, uh, they spiritually were hitting on all eight cylinders at this point in time. I want you to keep that in the back of your mind because that is a, just an essential piece of information for understanding the rest of what goes on here, okay? So, the second section of uh, the book of Isaiah takes in chapters 7 through 10. So in chapter 7, we see uh, another king, and that is uh, King Artaxerxes. Chapter 7 begins about 59 years after the temple was finished. So there's a, a span of time of about 59 years that takes place. Artaxerxes, um, for his own selfish reasons, but we know that the uh, heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, but Artaxerxes decides that he wants to send another group of people, and he wants to send countless uh, amounts of treasure uh, to, uh, back to Jerusalem. And most importantly, he selects a man named Ezra, that the book is named after. Um, and we see that he gives the, the uh, orders to Ezra that he wants Ezra to uh, spend some of this money he's given him and to buy animals to sacrifice. And he wants Ezra to sacrifice and to pray to the God of heaven uh, so that the king's welfare will be good and the king's sons will be blessed. So he kind of had, at least in his own mind, his own idea. Um, but as we're looking at it, we can see that God was supplying uh, a need that the people back in Jerusalem had. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, it's interesting that Artaxerxes described uh, Ezra uh, in chapter 7, verse 11. He said, uh, he's talking about the letter that he gave Ezra to carry with him. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra the priest, the scribe, expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. So he basically has commissioned an expert to go, and this is an expert in the law of the Lord. Uh, that is a uh, Hebrew word, Torah, that is translated uh, the law of the Lord. Um, and in fact, Ezra was an expert in the, in the Torah. So we see that God had a purpose for sending Ezra, but we don't really know at this point in time exactly what the problem is. God does, but we, you know, in, in chapter 7, we're, we're not aware of the problem. So Ezra collects all of this gold and silver that, uh, that he's going to take with him. 
He rounds up the people that are going to go with him. They have a, a time of prayer and fasting uh, because they're going to travel a long distance carrying a bunch of gold, and that is a somewhat of a suicide mission. Um, and so they pray and fast, and then they make the trip, and they arrive safely, and then they have a time of thanksgiving. So this all looks pretty good at this point because you're thinking, yeah, I mean, these are, these are really godly spiritual people that have just traveled there, and they're going to hook up with the, uh, the spiritual people that, uh, that we left 59 years ago. But you would be wrong if that's what you thought because chapters 9 and 10, Ezra discovered that the leaders, uh, some of which had died, but others that were now replacing them, the leaders had been basically pulled backwards into the pagan culture. So instead of that group of people that 59 years ago, I said was hitting on all eight cylinders, there are now a group of people that are pagans. They have slid all the way back from that spiritual high point uh, back into the place where that they are pagans. Uh, they are marrying pagan wives. They're raising pagan children that don't speak the Hebrew language, that know nothing of the Torah. Uh, they are openly defying the Torah. They're worshiping pagan gods. This is why that Judah was sent into exile in the first place because they were worshiping pagan gods. They were defying the Torah. They were defying the God of the Torah. There's a fact that you learn very quickly in missions, but it applies interestingly to even a church uh, in Michigan. And that is without godly leadership, people will default back to their pagan cultures. Um, we like to think of uh, our American culture here as not being pagan. Uh, maybe there was a time, if you're as old as I am or if you're old as Charlie Williams is, maybe there was a time you could say we were, we were a Christian nation. But um, anyhow, people here, uh, the same is true. Without godly leadership in a church, in a community, people will default back into a pagan existence. So fast forward with me just for a minute uh, to uh, the 21st century, uh, and I'm on a uh, teaching trip to Nepal about 10 years or so ago, and with me is a young staff pastor from my church by the name of Nathan Williams. And we uh, had finished our curriculum for that day. And as is the habit uh, always, at the end of the uh, daily teaching, we have a Q&A time. Uh, this is more for my benefit even than for their benefit because it helps me to get to know what my guys are struggling with. So one of the young pastors there uh, said, the Buddhist Lama has told us that the Buddha was born 800 years before Jesus was born. And of course, in Asian culture, the older is always much more honorable than the younger. So the Buddhist Lama has said to these uh, men that are Christians, um, the Buddha is more honorable than Jesus. 
Well, most of our people are first-generation believers, which means they were not raised in a Christian home. I had the blessing of being raised by Christian parents in a Christian home. Your pastor certainly was raised by Christian parents in a Christian home. But most of the believers in Nepal are first-generation believers, which means that they were raised in a Hindu or a Buddhist home. It means that when they were old enough to walk, their mother and grandmother would take them to the temple and they would teach them to bow down in front of the pagan idols. That's a heartbreaking thing if you, if you ever see that. So this Buddhist Lama who is talking to this man knows that he can pull people back into this pagan culture, which is exactly what he's trying to do. Um, people want to be pulled back to what their mother taught them as a child. They want to be a part of the community. It costs dearly to be a believer in Nepal and costs even more to be a leader. Now, just so that you don't get off track, uh, I will tell you that uh, the Bible uh, gives clear teaching that solved that dilemma for the people. Uh, you can review on your own uh, John chapter 1. Uh, but you will find in John chapter 1, right in the first verse, it says, In the beginning was the Word, that is Jesus, uh, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You'll also see later on in that chapter, all things were created by Him. So, not only is Jesus older than the Buddha, but Jesus created the Buddha. Uh, so Jesus is very much more honorable than the Buddha. Um, so we were able to communicate that to, uh, to this brother. So we, we are doing essentially what Ezra was going to do. Ezra, remember, came and found that they had had slipped back into the pagan culture. And Ezra had what they needed to pull them back out of that. Ezra was going to train godly leaders. In Nepal, that is what we are trying to do. We're trying to train godly leaders. Um, if they do not have godly leadership, then they will slide back into the pagan culture. Um, and as I said before, if you don't have godly leadership, you're going to slide back into the pagan culture. So what does this look like? What, what does Ezra 7.10 look like, uh, both scripturally and in, the, in Nepal and the other countries that we uh, have pastor training? So we see, first of all, in um, verse 10, we see Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. A godly leader must be taking in the word of God every single day. You cannot give out what you have not taken in. Um, it's interesting. Uh, if, if you um, look at uh, Jesus and he trained his disciples and um, you think about the time when he pulled aside the disciples, and then he gave them what we call the Sermon on the Mount. 
And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, a verse that probably most of you have, have memorized, you're very familiar with, um, he tells his disciples, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. What things? Well, the, the food you need to eat, the clothes you need to wear, and so forth. Uh, and we often mistakenly turn this passage into an Economics 201. We focus on how do we get our food, how do we get our clothing. That's not the focus, all right? What this verse is telling us that our number one priority in life must be seeking the kingdom of God, period. End of discussion. Um, so this is, where, this is where Ezra was coming from. He was seeking the law of the Lord. He was seeking the Torah. He, he was spending the time in God's word. Then we see something that is so often omitted. Um, just four short words here. Actually, three short words. And do it. So not only are you going to seek the law of the Lord, but you're going to do the law of the Lord. Uh, once again, turning to the Sermon on the Mount um, and the uh, Matthew 7, a little bit longer verse here, uh, 724. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine, Jesus has been teaching them, and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. If you are doing the word of God, doesn't matter what kind of storms come. Doesn't matter how many times the Buddhist Lama tries to drag you back doesn't matter what kind of attack, what kind of false teacher that comes into town. You're going to stay firm on the rock. That's doing the law of the Lord, doing the word of God. Finally, we get to the thing that you probably expected. Ezra prepared his heart to teach the word. So it's interesting, you don't even get to the teaching point until you have taken it in, you've been seeking the law of the Lord, and you've been doing the law of the Lord. Uh, you're not going to be successful teaching the law of the Lord if you don't take it in and you, and you don't do it. People are watching you. Uh, they're watching you every day of your life. And why would they buy into a teaching if you don't exhibit that in your own life? Um, so we want pastors that we train in our countries, we want them to daily seek God's word. We want them to live by God's word, and we want them to teach God's word to their people. So we, we train pastors who are ultimately going to go and train other people. Um, so how did we get there and, and where are we going with this training? Sue mentioned that we started um, about 25 years ago um, traveling in and out of a number of countries. What she didn't say is that the countries we were going in and out of were um, highly restricted countries. Um, 
my wife, the criminal, would smuggle Bibles and teaching literature uh, into these countries. You know, you'd expect something like that from me, but from Sue, you'd never expect that. Um, but in fact, um, uh, you know, we believe that there was no country that was closed to the Lord, and we believed that what they needed was a copy of the Bible. Uh, we were in places where people um, would take one copy of God's Word and they would take four or five pages, tear them out, give them to this person, another few pages and give them to that person and then they would exchange them. Uh, if they were caught with the Bible, uh, they could pay a huge price for it. So we started doing that kind of ministry and that's how we ended up in Nepal. When we first went to Nepal, uh, they were heavily enforcing the anti-conversion laws. If you um, shared Christ with someone, uh, you could go to jail for six years if that person received Christ. And the person who received Christ would also go to jail. Um, prior to 1950, there was no gospel witness whatsoever in Nepal. The first time I went to Nepal was in January of 1996. There were less than a thousand known believers in the entire country. Um, the government was clamped down very hard. Um, the Lord has opened things up some, but there are still um, numerous uh, instances of persecution against believers in Nepal. Um, but two pastors in Nepal uh, challenged us with the vision of allow the children. The one pastor said to me, brother, if, if we could help, if you could help us help our people so their children could go to school, so their children could get medical attention when they need it, so their children could have new clothes, um, then our church would grow. And so I took that uh, part of the vision home with me. Another pastor said, brother, our evangelists, when we send them up into the hills to go to a village, it takes two or three days to walk. They say walk, it actually means climb uh, into those villages. And then he can minister and then he's got to walk back two or three days. And the man feeds his family by doing day labor. He goes down to the marketplace every day. He finds uh, a construction project or an agricultural project that's going on and he will work all day and he'll earn a couple of dollars for that day and he'll feed his family. But if he takes that journey up into that village to evangelize, he doesn't work those days. Guess what happens to his kids? Yeah, they go to bed hungry at night. So this pastor said, if you could help the children and those evangelists, it would really help that ministry. So I took these two challenges home and laid them out before my wife Sue, thinking, yeah, we, you know, we'll discuss these things and pray about them and uh, you know, we'll come to an understanding. And I laid out these challenges before Sue and she said, yeah, we're gonna do it. Uh, so I didn't get a chance to use my persuasive arguments or anything like that. Um, but uh, we then entered into this, um, this ministry where, that, that Sue described to you, where we were uh, developing a child sponsorship program. We were feeding hungry children. Um, we were um, working with families. We were working through children's homes. We were working through churches. 
Interestingly, our opportunities to teach and train did not decrease, they increased. And we do more teaching and training now than we ever did before. Uh, sometimes God works that way. He takes you away from something because he's going to give you more of something. Um, the first uh, leadership training that I did uh, after Allow the Children was founded, um, our partner, Anand, uh, you haven't talked about Anand here, huh? Okay, well, Sue, I'm surprised Sue didn't either, but Anand uh, was an evangelist, still is an evangelist, but he's also our country director now in the, in the country of Nepal. And he explained to me that um, basically the Holy Spirit had been sweeping through the country and entire villages were coming to Christ. And then these people would get together at the oldest believer's house and they would want to discuss uh, the word of God, but nobody was trained. Nobody knew anything about it. Um, and so he said, would you train these people? There's only one answer to that question. Okay, you know, bring them together. So we started the, the early training uh, simply by, well, I actually said to the guys, what is it that you want to learn about? Tell me. So they would give me some topics, and I would go back that evening and, um, you know, spend my evening studying, putting together the, uh, the topic, and then I would come and teach them the next day. And then when they left, they went back to their villages, back to their house churches, and taught exactly what I taught. This is like, you know, training at its most basic form. Um, ultimately, this grew into a more structured program. Uh, we developed a curriculum. Uh, Pastor Nathan was very instrumental in that. He secured um, a book from the uh, MacArthur Ministry, and he got permission for us to translate that into Nepali. And it was a book that had, I think, 14 chapters in it, and uh, each chapter dealt with a specific doctrinal issue. So we were able to teach basic doctrine. Then after that, we supplemented those with book studies, different books of the Bible. As I recall, Pastor Nathan did Genesis uh, in that book. Um, I actually even did um, Isaiah, selected chapters out of that. So we did some book studies. We graduated the first group. Uh, a second group has come through. And we have seen this evolve now um, that there are Nepalis that now have been trained well enough that they can enter in and start training beginners groups. Um, and that's a blessing. We also started out by uh, the Americans doing kind of a road show. And we had five different venues. So you would go and teach in the first venue and then you would drive to another venue and, and you know, kind of make the circuit. We then reversed that and we developed a, a central training center, which we built. I could not find the pictures, but when we laid the cornerstone for the building for that training center, Pastor Nathan was one of the people that laid that cornerstone for that building. Uh, and there's a picture of him in this very deep hole, you know, it's over his head and all, uh, where the foundation uh, was, being, was going to be poured. Um, so now, instead of taking the American on a, a circuit, we bring the lead pastors from these different areas. 
we bring them all together uh, under this one roof on the central training area. And these lead pastors are trained and then they go back and they train the other leaders that are in their areas. So that seems to be working. Um, as Sue mentioned, the pandemic has wreaked havoc um, with getting Americans to go over there and train. Um, but God's got all this figured out, even though I don't have it figured out. Uh, and I know that um, sometimes God pulls us back from things because he wants to use that time to strengthen, to build up the people that are there. Uh, ultimately, I'm not going to be around forever. You know, you get to be my age and all that, and you wake up in the morning, and that's something to celebrate. Uh, so um, there, there will be a time, I'm certain, when the Nepalis will be able to take over all the aspects. Meanwhile, we want to continue to go and come and go alongside them, work uh, very closely with those local churches there to be able to train their leaders and all. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't say thank you to this church, um, both for your pastor who has blessed us over the years, but also for your support of the uh, training. Uh, we want to continue to uh, raise up Ezra in Nepal and the other countries where we are uh, so that these countries don't slide back into the pagan culture. Thank you, Pastor Nate. So I, as I was sitting there listening to Mike, uh, just thinking about the reality of, he said in 1950, there were, really was no Christian presence in the country of Nepal, right? So we're talking 70 years ago. There's virtually no believers there. In 1996, there are less than a thousand believers in Nepal. Okay, so that is 25 years ago. There's less than a thousand believers there. Um, I mean, I've been there and seen lots of believers, and churches are being planted so quickly that they can't even keep up with providing pastors for them. The Lord is, it, it's like a revival that's happening there. People are being saved out of Hinduism and to Christ, and the church is growing at a rapid pace there. And our church is part of, through Allow the Children, having a foundational level impact there in training these pastors. I mean, none of them have been saved more than a few years, definitely not more than 25. The church is a baby there. You know, in the American church, we, we have all these resources and seminaries, and, you know, we've been teaching the Word of God for hundreds of years and, and all of that, and the Lord has blessed here so tremendously, and we have the opportunity to take some of that and invest it in a country that is literally not able to walk yet, the church there. And they are growing rapidly, and we're able to train and to teach at a basic level, which is an unreal opportunity. I mean, it's almost like New Testament times, right, where the gospel goes into a city for the first time, and we're having the opportunity to train and teach basic hermeneutics and introduce them to the true triune God and not the gods of Hinduism. And so that is an amazing thing. And I hope that thrills your heart 
um, that we're able to do that and partner with them in that. Um, and then hopefully at some point in the future, some of you will be able to go over and have the opportunity to teach there or elsewhere and to continue to strengthen and to train the local church. Uh, around the world. So thank you to Mike and Sue. Thank you for being here and for sharing with us. And uh, it's been a, been a good morning and a sweet time together. I hope that, uh, I hope you're encouraged in that. Um, out in